Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. We do not live by bread alone, but indeed by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let the Church of Jesus Christ say, There are, I suspect, many things which might divide us as a family of faith this morning. We may differ in opinion on matters concerning the primary causes of inflation. Who is to blame for rising gas prices? What strategic role our nation ought to play to best help Ukraine? We who are gathered for worship together today most likely differ in our politics and in our preferred politicians. We differ in economics and in our preferred economic theories and outcomes. We may differ on whether war is ever justified and on whether whether war in the modern age could ever be truly just. There is much that may divide us, but here we are together in worship on this second Sunday of Lent. And, different though our opinions are, here we have come together to prepare ourselves, to consecrate ourselves, to make a tithe of sorts of these 40 days leading up to Easter. There is much that may divide us, but church, Jesus is keeping us together, and our eyes are fixed on him, let the church say. One of the things that unites us, however, is the fact that each one of us has had to get here today, whether in body or in spirit. We've had to cross some threshold. We've had to overcome some distance, even if that threshold was just waking up today, having been robbed by a whole hour by state law. I'm not sure the exact nature of the threshold that you or your family has had to cross to get here today, or as you prepared for worship this morning. Maybe you've returned recently from a trip that was busy and you're still exhausted, and losing an hour of sleep last night didn't do you any favors. Maybe you've just had to bury a family pet. 
Maybe you've received news that you're sick, the kind of sick that you don't want to talk about, the kind of sick that gets measured in stages, and you're terrified to say it. Stage three, stage four. Maybe for you, the weekend is running out, and the thought of having to return to work tomorrow is paralyzing. Maybe your work is utterly unsatisfying, and you're just punching the clock and trying to find a life raft to get to something more meaningful. Maybe you just had to get ready this morning, which, as you've discovered, is a process that is taking longer and longer with each passing year, and you persist in wondering why the Presbyterians insist on getting together at 9.30 for worship and not 11 o'clock like the good Methodists do. Maybe you're here and you've had to cross the threshold of grief. You are grieving the loss of your spouse, of your mother, father, one of your friends. Maybe this morning that loss hit you in a way that no one could expect or explain. Maybe you're dealing with health issues, issues with your kids. Maybe you're angry with a co-worker. Maybe you're in the midst of an argument with your spouse. Maybe you're in the midst of a divorce proceeding. Maybe you're watching the marriage of one of your children fall apart. Maybe your parents are getting old and are now becoming incapable of caring for themselves and that burden has fallen squarely on your shoulders. I don't know which one of these things or other things have taken up residence on your front porch waiting for you to stumble into them on the way out the door to worship today. What I do know is that each one of us here have shown up carrying something with us, some piece of emotional luggage that we don't really want to talk about, thank you very much. And as we've walked into this sanctuary, we have mentally steeled ourselves against that well-meaning question, how are you doing? We know that the answer people hope to hear is fine, and so we practice saying it without gritting our teeth. And so when people ask it, we'll say it, fine. But many of us aren't fine, are we? We're troubled, we're worried, we're anxious. Our bodies are carrying within them the scars and the wounds of the past two years of stress, and our former fortitude and independence has just collapsed in on itself. Today's gathering of saints for weekly Sunday worship on Lent 2 in 2022 is not a gathering of polished, perfect, tidy, and organized lives. Nice clothes are often a way of hiding a reality we'd prefer to avoid. My dear church, while there is so much that divides us in this world, this much keeps us together. We are a messy people trying to survive the days given to us just as often as we are trying to thrive in them. And where is God in the midst of these struggles and uncertainties? I mean, why doesn't God just zap our troubles away? eradicating the diseases in our bodies, fixing our broken relationships, and magically making all of our financial suffering we are enduring go away. Faced with whatever we're dealing with this week, we find that at the end of the day, we often have far more questions about our faith than we have answers. We often discover in adulthood that the faith of our childhood does not appear strong enough to combat the trials of adult lives. The pat answers we used to cling to 
can sometimes feel ashy and empty. And so I ask you, is there a word of hope for us today? We who have crossed our thresholds to get here, we who have dragged our emotional luggage with us and are sitting right now with our arms wrapped around it, is there something in the scriptures we might receive from God Almighty today? Yes, beloved, there is. And it comes to us in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. It's a book of starting places. It's a book that attempts to answer the question, where did we come from? It's a question that was asked 500 years before Jesus by Jewish folks who had been ripped from their homeland and forcibly resettled by a global superpower. Not just where did the human race come from, but where did we as God's people come from? What is our origin story? The first 11 chapters of Genesis provide a short summary of the way in which the human race came to be created and subsequently spread across the earth, separated into tribes and nations and peoples. It's the aerial drone footage high up above the biblical landscape. And beginning with chapter 12, the camera zooms in from its lofty view of creation and sin and flood until it focuses in on one single person and his family. And with that begins the specific story of the history of the Jewish people. And that story begins when an old Arab Bedouin named Abram stood at the door of his tent and heard the whisper of the Creator commanding him to go from his country and your father's tents to the land that I will show you. God promises Abraham something dramatic in return. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abram went, just as God said. No proof, no signs, nothing concrete, just God's voice in a vision. And Abram went. He was 75 years old. He was 75, married, without kids, even though his name, Abram, meant the father of a people, a name that seems particularly cruel for Abram to bear, for he and his wife, well into old age, are childless. How can he be the father of a people without ever having a child? Nevertheless, God said, go, and Abram went. And when Abram arrived at the doorstep of the land God told him about, God appears to him again and says, to your offspring I will give this land. Yet nothing had changed for Abram and his wife Sarai. They still had no children. They had no offspring. Several years go by. Abram's flocks are growing and multiplying, but there are still no children for him and his wife, no heirs, no hint of God's promises being fulfilled. God appears again, saying to Abram, look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, Look to the west. All this is for you and your offspring. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so numerous it cannot be counted. Yet more time passes, and still Abram and Sarai, now into their mid-80s, are still childless. And it is at this 
moment that we read our text from Genesis chapter 15. And in our reading today, Abram is justifiably troubled. He has been obedient to God, mostly. He has done what God expected. So where was the fulfillment of God's promises of heirs, children, descendants? Our text opens with God speaking to Abram in a vision and saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram, frustrated, anxious, worried, responds, What could you possibly give me? I am still childless, still without a biological heir. You've given me no offspring, and the closest thing I have to a child is a kid who was born to one of my servants. God says, you will have a child. He drags Abram outside, says, look up, count the stars. That is how numerous your descendants will be staring up at the thousands of pinpricks of light in the heavens and being told by God his family would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, Abram wanted to believe it could be true. And as our reading says in verse 16 today, despite the evidence to the contrary, despite the fact that Abram had no child, no tangible sign that he wasn't just out of his mind and hallucinating all of this, Despite the fact that he's in his mid-80s, the text reads, Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord thought of this as righteousness for him. Abram believed what God was promising, and God counted that belief as righteousness, as someone doing what people are supposed to do when God makes promises. Abram believed. He had literally nothing as evidence, except the whisper of a voice. The righteous person believes God's word even without tangible evidence. The righteous person trusts God's promises even without immediate proof. All Abram had at this point was a new address. He had no tangible blessing, no reward, nothing he could look to and say, yes, God will provide. He just had a promise and a new campsite. Nevertheless, God again makes promises to Abram, promises that his descendants would inherit some land. And finally, Abram, the righteous one, the believing one, Abram, the trusting one, asks God the question that I think we are often asking God. Lord, how am I to know that this is true? In other words, Abram asks God, how am I supposed to believe this? What sign, what evidence, what thing can you give me that will help me know you are telling the truth? Abram wanted a sign. He wanted confirmation. After over a decade of moving around without anything but the whisper of a dream or a vision, Abram wanted something he could hold in his hands to point to and say, ah, that is how I'll know. He wanted a symbol, something he could see with his eyes. So Abram and God collaborate on what some have called the first sacrament. Abram takes animals, ritually slaughters them, and places them there on the ground. And then when they were prepared, God causes Abram to fall into a deep sleep. And God, in the form of fire and smoke, 
blesses those slain animals and passes between their parts, promising Abram again that his descendants will, in fact, inherit the land. Now, if you're out there and this sounds strange, it is. It's weird. But this symbolic action of cutting animals in two and passing between them actually was an old ritual tradition from Babylon that they used to use to mark the signing of a land treaty. The ones making the promise would cut an animal in two and walk between the bloody parts and would symbolically say, may this happen to me if I do not keep this promise. May I be cut in two if I do not honor my agreement. And so consider this. As God pronounces his promise again to Abram and then God's smoky, fiery presence passes between the split parts of the animals Abraham prepared, it was as if God was saying, may I, the Lord, be cut in half. May I, the eternal one, be ripped in two if I fail to keep my promise to you. It's an intimate gesture. It is a provocative act of God to be so bold in his promise-making. But it is in God's character to keep his promises to us. Though it should be noted, we often do not always experience those promises being kept on a timeline or in ways that we often understand. I'm preaching on this strange story of Abram this morning because I think that there's a bit of Abram in all of us. We have all heard God's promises to be with us, to walk alongside us, to feed us, to heal us. And sometimes our prayer life becomes us saying to God, yes, yes, God, but how will I know? How will I know that I can trust you to do these things? I preach on this story of airless Abram, because it teaches those of us who are trying to live faithful Christian lives an important dimension of what that life entails. As Christians, we must trust God to be a promise-keeping God regardless of our present circumstances. Church, Abraham believed God's promises long before he asked for a sign. The text says, without a single shred of evidence, he was not crazy. In making the whole voice of God up, Abraham believed what God was saying, and God considered Abraham's faith to be exactly what he expects from his children. The righteous life is a faith-filled, trust-filled life. The righteous life does not prioritize having proof above having faith or seeing evidence before arriving at a verdict. Abram believed, Abram trusted, Abram had faith, that one day God would fulfill his end of the bargain. Now look, let me be clear. For Abram, it would be another 14 years after this strange sacramental moment before Abram's wife Sarai would conceive and give birth to their son Isaac. 14 more years of waiting, wishing, hoping, dreaming, mourning. And for those keeping track at home, the time from God's first call to Abram in Genesis 12 to the birth of Isaac in chapter 21 is 25 years in length. 25 years of waiting for God to fulfill his promise. 25 years of waiting after 75 years of living. 
And during those years of waiting and worrying, Abram certainly wasn't perfect. Perfect. He tried to find his own way out. He tried to find a biological loophole by having a child with his wife's servant, with his wife's permission. See, now look, church. When people come at me with like, oh, let's just preach the biblical family. I gotta tell you, is that really what we want? Even in spite of this, God would still fulfill his promise to Abram. It just would be on a radically different timetable than Abram would have predicted. And this is still true for us. Sometimes we try to find ways to take matters into our own hands, to forego waiting for God to move and just to do something that we can see and cling to. But nevertheless, the God that we worship here, the God that we give our service, our lives to, is faithful to his promises and honors the promises he has made. In the righteous path before God, God's preferred course for our lives, does not attempt to seize control from God, but rather trusts God to believe what God says, like Abram believed God, even if it means having to wait 25 years to see a prayer request answered even if it means that your prayers are not answered in the way you think best. For in life and in death, we must be a people whose trust is in God, the almighty maker of heaven and earth. And if you are looking for some words, if you're looking for something you can cling to to help you pray this week as we grieve a world torn apart by war, if you're looking for something you can cling to, as you cross whatever personal thresholds you have to cross that bring with it sorrow or grief, if you're searching for some hope, some good news, then there are few better places to, ter- to start than with the psalm that was read for us today. If you're here this morning and you're caught up in whatever painful reality is present in your life, if you're here and your mind is on edge because you're so distracted with the anxiety of the decisions or the problems that await you out there, if you, like Abram, are carrying a heavy burden of worry today, take heart. The words of Psalm 27 today are for you. Let us read these together. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And if you feel that the powers of evil are pressing into you or your family, if you feel that, if you feel powerless against the explosion of tragedy, disease, or grief, take heart. The words of Psalm 27 today are for you together. When evil assails me and tries to slander me, it shall stumble and fall. If an army should encamp against me, my heart will not fear. And if you feel exposed or wounded and in trouble, if you feel like a soldier who is dying in the midst of a battlefield surrounded by trouble and hopelessness, then take heart. The words of Psalm 27 today are for you. For God will hide me in the shelter on the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tents. He will set me high up on a rock. And if you're here today and you've exhausted yourselves in your prayers, and if you feel as if God is silent and absent, and if you feel that there is no, no 
no hope left anymore. Take heart. The words of Psalm 27 today are for you. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. And if you feel betrayed, abandoned, or devastated, if you feel lonely, isolated, or cut off from your friends or your family, take heart. The words of Psalm 27 today are for you. For even if my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. And if you know that death is close, if you feel the creeping certainty that your life will soon draw to a close, take heart. The words of Psalm 27 today are for you. I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And whoever you are, and whatever you are feeling on this particular Sunday, and whatever struggles you face, and whatever perilous journey you must undertake, and whatever your work might bring tomorrow, and, what, and whoever your eyes might see, and what your hands find to do, and where your feet find to go, take heart. The words of Psalm 27 outline our posture as we approach Easter. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So church, let us wait for the Lord, the God of Abram and Sarai, the God who makes promises and keeps them, the God who promises us salvation in Jesus Christ, the God who promises to be with us even into the waking hours of our death, the God who promises us comfort when we grieve, rest when we are weary, and mercy whenever we have sinned. And as we journey to Easter, let us again put our trust in this promise-keeping God. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church say, Amen.